welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Uh, I'm Rob, I'm here with Cheeto. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about Sir Sean Connery. Uh, we're going to do a few of these podcasts where we focus on a particular actor or director and kind of mix it up with our usual content. So to start off with, I'll just give a little bit brief background uh, of his early life. Um, so Sean Connery was born Thomas Connery in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland on the 25th of August 1930. His mother was a cleaning woman. His father was a factory worker and lorry driver, so he came from fairly humble background. Two of his paternal great-grandparents actually emigrated to Scotland from Ireland. So he has got some Irish ancestry as well. Um, he left school at 14 and got a job with working for the co-op as a mugman delivering milk. Uh, in 1946, at the age of 16, he joined the Royal Navy, uh, did his basic training in Portsmouth and joined then HMS Formidable as an able seaman. He was actually discharged at the age of 19 on medical grounds because of duodenal ulcers. He then returned to the co-op and then he worked, amongst other things, as a lorry driver, a lifeguard, a labourer, an artist model for the Edinburgh College of Art. Um, and then at the age of 18, he began bodybuilding. And although his official website states he was third in the 1950 Mr Universe contest, most sources place him in the 1953 competition, either third in the junior class or failing to place in the tallman class. Um, he was a keen footballer, having played for Bonnie Rick Rose in his younger days. And while he was on tour in South Pacific, he played in a football match against a local team that Matt Busby, manager of Manchester United, happened to be scouting. And according to reports, Busby was impressed with his physical prowess and offered him a contract worth £25 a week. He said he was tempted to accept, but he realised that you know, by the age of 30, a footballer's career is older. And at that time, he was already 23, um, so he decided to become an actor instead. In 1953, um, Connolly found himself in London attending a bodybuilding competition. A fellow muscle man mentioned that the King's Theatre was holding open auditions for a production of Rogers and Hammerstein's South Pacific. Um, Connolly went along, and he was initially placed in the chorus, and like he worked his way up to like understudy of the lead. And then he was a natural talent, and... Uh, over the next decade, Connery picked up parts in many diverse films, from thriller, time-lock and adventure, epic, Tarzan's Greatest Adventure, to 1961 Comedy Caper on the Fiddle. Yeah, and then his, his next film after that was, it was a, a small part in the epic war film, The Longest Day, based mm. on the, uh, the Normandy landings, where he played an Irishman, <laughs> uh, Private Flanagan. Um and then the next film after that was obviously his big break. Mm, in Doctor No. Um, while, basically, while Connery was, was um, kind of finding his feet in the acting world, um, uh, producers Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Cubby Broccoli were busy like wrangling a man of their own. And that man's name was, of course, James Bond. And uh, they set out... Uh, There's basically this huge mission to set out to find who to play the super spy. And their first choice was Cary Grant. Um, he was chosen, actually given the part uh, right then and there. Uh, the contract was written up and, and all but signed. So they were ready to, to start filming with him. Uh, the Hollywood leading man revealed he would only make one film because I think he was 58, he must have been at the time, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to create a whole series. So they were forced to part ways at that because they were like, we want to make a full series, you know. And like other names are kicked around, including Patrick McGowan of the Prison of Fame and David Niven, who I think was also 50 years old at the time. Uh, the director, Terence Young, was pushing for Shakespearean actor Richard Johnson to take the role. And that is, this shocked me, this bit. Even Roger Moore, of course, who, who was a future 007, was considered at this time. But Broccoli considered him too young and perhaps a shade too pretty. And this is the thing... Uh, the writer wanted something different, Ian Fleming. The director wanted something different. The producers wanted something different. So you could see why there was all this trouble trying to cast cast James Bond. Um, 
Fleming himself weighed in. Uh, an actor named Richard Todd was the author's choice. The performer embodied Wing Commander Guy Gibson and Dan Busters. Uh, Saltzman and Broccoli disagreed once again. Go back. Yeah, Richard Todd's very sharp, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And I, I don't think he fit really the image no. of what Saltzman and Broccoli had, you know. Um, like I said, an agreement couldn't be reached and the search was started yet again. And around this time, the Daily Express, which is a newspaper here in the UK, decided to launch a contest, find James Bond. And so along came Connery, at least a decade younger than most of his serious candidates. He was a rank outsider for the part. Nevertheless, Broccoli and Saltzman agreed to meet the actor for lunch. Now, when they met for lunch, he didn't make the best first impression. Connery appeared at the restaurant looking dishevelled, with Broccoli in particular, recalling that he was wearing unimpressive clothes and looked unkept. But Dana Broccoli, Cubby's wife, had persuaded her husband to give Connery a chance. And so there they were across the table from the man who would be Bond. And that's literally, it was over one like dinner that they decided that Sean Connery was going to be James Bond in Doctor No. So it's to me, it's really fascinating how they they had this um, huge, like even like, an, like I said, Daily Express is a national newspaper here. And it was this whole like um, UK wide search to find James Bond. You just don't get that anymore, do you? You know, you get a cast and director, they choose their leading man, but that's really fascinating, so. What I read was that what Broccoli liked about Sean Connery was the fact, although he was a big man, I mean, he was six foot two, Mm. amateur bodybuilder, the the way that he moved in a very graceful way. Um, And then obviously his wife confirmed that he had that sex appeal as well. Yeah, well, it was actually, um, as he was walking to the table, that they, they decided that. So, like I said, it's just fascinating that, I mean, Fleming didn't like him initially, did he? Because no. he felt he was um, kind of uh, too rough to play it. Because he obviously James Bond, he's suave, sophisticated, educated. Mm. Well, he's um, based on Christopher yeah. Lee, isn't he? So um, like that type of. And I think Terence Terence Young, the director, kind of took Connery under his wing and sort mm. of taught him those things, took him out to dinner, and you know, gave him these um, almost like uh, like uh, lessons. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, after after Fleming saw Doctor No, he he realised that you know Sean Connery was James Bond, and actually, in subsequent books, wrote James Bond a Scottish heritage yeah. as well, which is kind That's of, how much of an impact he's had on. Exactly, yeah. So then from that, he went on to make two more Bond films, didn't he? From Russia with Love, yep, and, and Goldfinger, yep. and obviously were massive hits. But I think, like with most actors. He was initially reluctant to sign on for a series because of that typecasting. Yeah. And so even whilst making Bond, he wanted to go and do other films. And I think Eon offered him other films, but he turned them down. Mm. And they asked him, what do you want to do then? What, what film do you want to make? He says, well, I want to work with Hitchcock. Yeah. And he, they set it up for him to actually make the film Marnie with Alfred Hitchcock and uh, with starring Tippi Hedren. Because wasn't it like... Um Obviously, of course, when you get a huge part like James Bond, you're yeah. the most wanted man, basically. Yeah. And it was like I read actually it was um, Hitchcock and all these other great directors were actually wanting. They yeah. contacted him. They actually wanted him mm. to join their movies. So, yeah. so the film Man, it's 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 kind of a bit bit of a dark film yeah. because it's um, Tip Hedren is a, a she plays a thief with psychological problems. And Connery's character blackmails her into marrying him, and there's a scene in which he actually rapes her, which is you know I've never seen that in a Hitchcock film. Jesus, yeah. Um, and before he made it, he was he was worried that it was going to be another like spy thriller, like North by Northwest. So he mm. insisted on reading the script, and you know um, Hitchcock said to him, he said even Cary Grant never read asked to read the script. He says, well, I'm not Cary Grant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Sean Connery. <laughs> But I think that that film was was fairly successful, and mm. it, it proved again that he could do other things other, other than things. James Bond. And again, the following year, he made um, one of your particular favorites, yeah. the, Hill, the Hill, which um, I think is one of five films that he actually made with Sidney Lumet. Yeah, Lumet. Yeah. Sorry, he, he directs it, and it's set in an army prison in North Africa at the end of the Second World War, and it start. It's got a huge cast. It stars Sean Connery. Harry Andrews, Ian Bannon, Ozzy Davis, Ian Hendry, 
Alfred Lynch, Roy Kinnear and Michael Redgrave. And the plot is five British soldiers are sent to a detention camp in the Libyan desert, including Sergeant Major Roberts, played by Connery, whose conviction for the assault of an officer is shrouded in a mystery. As punishment, the vicious Staff Sergeant Williams, Henry, orders the prisoners to continuously climb a man-made hill in the scorching desert heat. Though his colleague, Staff Sergeant Harris, Ian Bannon, sympathises with the new detainees, he can only watch as Williams goes to sadistic extremes. But yeah, like I said, it's, it's one of my favourites, yeah. and... Um, it's refreshing to see Con- like, I love Connery as Bond but it's refreshing to see him in different roles as well especially in a war film yeah and again it went to prove that he could play more dramatic yeah. parts and although it it didn't do very well commercially it, it did do wonders for his mm. career and, and it's now regarded as, as a brilliant film now yeah, isn't it so it is, yeah um, after that he went on to make uh, another Bond film which I think is, is he your favourite Thunderball yeah Thunderball yeah um and this was, I believe, the third, uh, the third and last um, film by Terence Young, I believe. Right. And uh, yes, it's the fourth in the James Bond series, produced by Eon Productions, and um, is an adaptation of the nineteen sixty one novel of the same name by Ian Fleming. And uh, it follows Bond's mission to find two NATO atomic bombs stolen by Spectre which holds the world for ransom of £100 million uh, in diamonds under its threat to destroy an unspecified metropolis and evil United Kingdom of the United States. The search leads Bond to the Bahamas, where he encourages, uh, encounters Emilio Lago, the car-playing, eye-patch-wearing Spectre number 2, backed by CIA agent Felix Leitner and Lago's mistress, Domino Duval. Bond, Bond's search culminates in an underwater battle with Lago's henchmen. And yeah, it is a, is a favourite of mine. I know that can be quite controversial, but as someone who obviously didn't live through the Bond movies, I just, in particular, I just like this one. I don't know why. Yeah. And there was, uh, yeah, there was some uh, controversy about this film yeah. because it was a, it was originally meant to be the first yeah, Bond meant film, to be the first one, yeah. And the, it, it then was the centre of legal disputes that began in 1961. And what happened was former Ian Fleming collaborators Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham sued Fleming shortly after the 1961 publication of the Thunderbird novel, claiming he based it upon based it on their screenplay that they'd written earlier. Um, the lawsuit settled out of court, but McClory retained certain screenwrites to the novel's story, plot, and characters, which would go on to have an impact later on. In 1967, he made what was intended to be his final Bond film, You Only Live Twice, and he would be passing on the mantle to George Lazenby. He was an Australian, I believe, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And his next film uh, after that was actually his, his only Western that he ever made, and it was called Shalico, and it was a one of those European Westerns. Mm. Like, everybody, after the success of, like, Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars, everyone was making these kind of European Westerns. It's a British-German production, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it had Bridget Bardot in it, as well as Jack Hawkins, Honor Blackman, who, who actually was his co-star in Goldfinger. Mm. But again, it, was, it wasn't it was particularly well-received, and it lost money at the box office. Um, after that, he would make um, his next film for Sydney Wilmette, called The Anderson Tapes. And this is kind of a... A warning, I guess, for um, surveillance. Um, he plays a safe cracker. Is released from prison. Um, he renews his relationship with his old girlfriend. She lives in an upper class apartment block in Manhattan, and so he decides that almost instantly he's going to put a team together to rob the whole apartment block. But little does he know is that everything he's doing is 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 under surveillance. So it's cameras, bugs, tracking devices. Um, and so everything they're doing is being watched, and in the end, as soon as they f- finish the robbery, they're essentially captured. And I guess that's a warning for the future. You know, now the, the, we live in a, uh, a world where everything's kind of monitored, you know, CCTV, yeah. internet. You're never not on a camera. Not, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, and after that, then he, although actually, on a Majesty's Secret Service, is considered... One of the one of the better Bond films. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? it's always um, it's always near the top. But they they wouldn't really accept George Lazenby's Bond. I don't think is that Jude or just because he's Australian? I don't maybe. know. Just maybe because he's maybe not not Sean Connery. Yeah, um, got some big shoes to fill. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> uh, 
So he returned to the Bond franchise uh, for a record $1.25 million, which I worked out yesterday is worth $8 million in today's, which was actually 17% of their budget. Oh, my God. Um, and they paid him so much that they had to compromise in other areas of the film, so like the special effects. Yeah. And that the film, as the title suggests, is all about diamonds and how Spectre are uh, stockpiling diamonds. Um, they initially think it's to depress the price of them, but it actually turns out that they're building a, a laser satellite using the diamonds, which they're going to um, destroy nuclear weapons in China, the Soviet Union, and the United States. And then he's going to hold an auction for nuclear supremacy. I mean, it earned back its $7.2 million budget and then some making $116 million, which means that, you know, obviously Sean Connery as Bond is... is yeah, I mean, just to put it into words, it was the number one film in the world for seven straight weeks. It just goes to show uh, Connery's star power. Well, then this kind of leads into uh, a time, a period when... You know, Connery's career was on the downward spiral. He, he really was struggling to get parts. Um, he worked with Sidney Lumet again in another film um, called The Offence. It's a British crime neo-noir drama film based on a stage play. Um, and Connery plays a detective who um, essentially he's uh, questioning a, pretend, a suspected child molester played by Ian Bannon. Um, and he beats him so much that he later dies in hospital. Um, so it's it's quite um, it's set in like a it's a one scene. It's set in an interrogation room most of the actual film. So it's kind of that because Sidney Lumet did obviously Twelve Angry Men. Mm. So it's that kind of pressure cooker uh, type film. Um, and then he made he made a weird film, um, the nineteen seventy four science fantasy film called Zardoz, and that's written and directed by John Borman. Um, and Borman was trying to make a, a, a dramatisation of The Lord of the Rings, but just couldn't get it off the ground. Um, and he'd originally cast Burt Reynolds in this role, but he pulled out due to illness. Um, and Sean Connery, because obviously needing, he's trying to rebuild his career, really, signed on. And that's why Barman said that they managed to get him for two hundred thousand dollars. Oh my god! Yeah. And it's 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 a really weird film. It's set in the future. Connery spends most of the film um, running around in a mankini. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's again, it's become one of those sort of cult classics. But I wouldn't mm. say it's it's one of his best films. And then nineteen seventy four again, he makes another Sidney Lumet film. Um, Murder on the Orient Express, which is based on the Agatha Christie novel. Now, Lumet cast Connery first because he thought that, because Connery at the time was kind of the biggest star in the world, mm. that if you cast Connery first, the others, the other actors would sign on. And when you look at the cast, you've got Lauren Bacall, Henry Bergman, John Gielgud, Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York, Jacqueline Bissett, Anthony Perkins, Richard Widmark, and obviously Albert Finney as, as Poirot. Uh, it's a small part, it's an ensemble cast. Um, he plays, again, a, a British uh, military officer. His next film would be the 1975 uh, epic adventure war film, The Wind and the Lion, which was written and directed by John Milius. Um, and it starred Connery with Candice Bergen and John Huston. And it was set in 1904. Uh, Connery plays um, a Moroccan leader who kidnaps an American woman and her children uh, to, for ransom, um, and it's it's like a political kind of film, um, but interestingly, it's co-starred John Huston, who actually would uh, direct his next film, which he said was his favourite part, which was mm. the man who would be king, uh, based on a Rudyard Kipling short story. Like I say, it was adapted and directed by John Huston, and it would star Sean Connery alongside his friend Michael Caine. I think they actually met back in 1954, and they were friends ever since. And it also stars Christopher Plummer as Kipling. Um, it's set in the, in the late 19th century in British India, and Connery and Michael Caine star as two um, 
ex-soldiers who get into trouble in India uh, and are told that if they get into any more trouble, they're going to be deported. So they decide to go off to Kafiristan, which is like a far-off uh, country, um, to see if they can seek their fortune. And Kafiristan split up into, like, tribes, and each tribe's got a leader. And so what they do is they, the first leader they come across, they help him lead them into battle against his uh, rival tribe and, and beat them. And so they do this a few times. And then in one of the battles, Connery gets shot by an arrow, but it sticks in his leather belt and he just pulls it out. And they see him do this and they think that he's a god then. Um, and so they take him and Michael Caine to the capital and they believe that he's the reincarnation of Alexander the Great. Um, and they show him Alexander's treasure, so there's gold and diamonds and other precious stones. Um, and Michael Caine's character wants to leave, but he's he's getting used to being a god. Um, and he decides to take a wife. And the superstition is, is that if a mortal woman was to sleep with a god, she would burst into flames. So on their wedding day, she's having to be drugged <laughs> to marry him. Um, and something goes wrong, and she ends up biting him, and he bleeds, and that's when they realise he's not a god. So it's 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 a really it's one of those kind of old style um, boys on adventure type films. Mm. So it's it's well worth watching. And like I said, he considered it one of his favourite his favourite parts. Um, Nineteen seventy six, he would uh, he'd play Robin Hood in Robin and Marion, um, and this is like a an odd film because it shows Robin and Marion as older people. He's He's been off fighting in the Crusades for years. He comes back only to find Marion is now a nun. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those films that gives you like a little bit of an insight into when characters get older. Um, his next film was the 1977 epic war film, Bridge Too Far, and it's um, an ensemble cast, and it's about Operation Market Garden um, during the Second World War, which was the biggest, um, biggest allied airdrop, parachute drop um, in history and he plays Major General Roy Hercard. Uh, it's a good film but like I say it's, it's an ensemble cast mm. and it does feature some you know, big names. It's directed by uh, Richard Attenborough and you've got like Dirk Bogard, James Carr, Michael Caine, Edward Fox, Elliot Gold, Gene Hackman, Anthony Hopkins, Hardy Kruger, Lawrence Olivier, Ryan O'Neill, Robert Redford. Um, so and again, it was in that period when he's, he's still trying to re rebuild his career, mm. really. Um, the next film he made was the 1979 um, heist film, really, um, called The First Great Train Robbery, and it's written and directed by uh, Michael Crichton. Um, it stars Sean Connery, Donald Sutherland, and Leslie Endown. Um, and it is, like I say, a, it's almost like a heist film in the, in the mould of Ocean's Eleven, it's set during the Crimean War, uh, and the plan is that uh, this group of uh, thieves led by Sean Connery, they're going to steal gold that's being heading to the Crimean War to pay uh, it's the payroll for the soldiers in the Crimean War, and they plan to steal it from a moving train. So again, it's 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 a good film, um, but again, it's during that period when he was still... Still really trying to rebuild his career. Mm. Uh, next film, I guess, would be Outland, which I really like this film. Um, it's a science fiction thriller, and it's he plays a, a federal marshal, and he's assigned to a, t a tour of duty on a, a moon, I think it's low, moon of Jupiter, and he's there to investigate... Um, drugs and and uh, drug smuggling um, because the miners there are being given stimulants so they actually work harder and more productive um, and it's got a very uh, it's been described as a space western but it's got a very alien feel to it and the style of the film um, again it's probably not one of his most well known films but I, I really did <coughs> like it um the next film of his was the same year was the Fantasy Adventure Time Bandits, which was written, uh, produced and directed by Terry Gilliam. And Sean Connery stars as King Ag Agamemnon. And <laughs> actually in the, in the script, he was never actually meant to be 
uh, in the film. In the script, it just says King Ag Agamemnon takes off his helmet, revealing Sean Connery or somebody mm. equally as good but cheaper. Mm. And f somehow the, the script got to him and he agreed to do it. But, you know, Time Bandits is a, is a good film. Yeah, it's it? a classic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, he'd go on to actually narrate the 1982 official FIFA World Cup film. Um, and then I, I guess his next sort of big film would be Never Say Never mm. Again in 1983, where he, he would reprise his role with James Bond, but in uh, a non-Eon film. It was a uh, Talia film, wasn't yeah. it? And this goes back to Thunderball. Uh, because Kevin McClory held, uh, because of the legal battle with uh, Ian Fleming over rights, Kevin McClory actually retained some of the rights to the Thunderball storyline. So they essentially, um, it was Thunderball, but under a different name. Uh, and that was directly released opposite, I think, Octopussy as mm -hmm. well, which is a Roger Moore film. So, yeah, it's quite a. Um simple plot and it obviously he's he's older and it the plot revolves around the fact that he's older and uh it, it basically is like an aging james bond makes an uncharacteristic mistake during a routine training mission leading m played by edward fox to believe that the legendary british intelligence spy is now past his prime and m indefinitely suspends bond from active duty however when spectre member fatima bush and her fellow terrorists successfully steal two nuclear missiles from the US military. M must reinstate Bond as he is the only agent who can beat Spectre at their own game of espionage. And quite controversially, this is my this is actually my favourite James Bond film. Even though it's not an Eon Productions, um it's a Tali film, but it's just something about it and I like I like the fact that it it's it explores different themes and like it is an aging bond and you can see that with his character and the way the story's written, and it's almost like a um, him finding himself again. Because, like I said, he makes a mistake, and it's about him redeeming that. And yeah, and it's obviously um, directed by Evan Kirshner, so it's going to be of high quality, you know. So yeah, it's definitely my favourite James Bond film. Yeah, and this would kind of mark a, a switch in kind of Connery's career because his next film would be 1986's Highlander. And he goes from kind of being the leading man to being more of the mentor, sort of father figure. In Highlander, he plays a character called Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, who's supposedly a swordsman from Spain, but he's actually turned out to be um, from Egypt, and he is one of the immortals. And he seeks out Conor McLeod, played by Christopher Lambert, and basically... Uh, teaches him about sword fighting, about, you know, where he's from and, and what they are, essentially. And I think the reason he did this was he got to shoot it in the Scottish Highlands. Um, and I think he only spent a week, actually, on the film. Hmm. And this is the first time, probably since James Bond, that he appeared in a sequel, which was Highlander hmm. 2 in 1991. Um, after that, he made uh, a film called The Name of the Rose, which was a, a European... Um, co-production and it's again it's an odd storyline he plays a Franciscan friar um, and he's kind of investigating a murder in medieval Europe um, he also starred Christian Slater as his apprentice so again he's playing that mentor yeah. figure older p figure um, and I thought he, I thought it was a, a, a decent film again it was a departure from anything he'd really done before and just did illustrate his um, his acting ability, mm. um, and I think nineteen eighty seven was the the Untouchables. Mm. That was the film that really changed his career. Yeah, the um, axis of his career. Yeah. Yes. Again, he plays he plays the mentor to Kevin Costner. Uh, set during Prohibition, Chicago. Al Capone is gangster. He's bootlegging alcohol. No one really wants to stop him. Kevin Costner plays Elliot Ness, Treasury Officer, comes to Chicago. Um, it's full of corruption. Nobody really wants him there. No one wants to help him. And then he comes across Sean Connery, um, an ageing police um, officer. Um, and then they build this team called the Untouchables. And they call that because they can't be bribed or, or got to. 
And for his performance in this, he was he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Mm. And that really did then kick kick his career on into probably the, the sort of second phase of his career. I mean, it in my opinion, it's it's one of the most legendary supporting actor um roles ever. Yeah. And what it did for his career, like he was doing these like little independent like European films and then it really made I, I can't tell you like take this as it is, it made him the most wanted actor in the world. Mm. And after that he was appearing in all these huge blockbusters and he seemed to appear in a film every single year that was of, of note, you know, and, and it he really was the most wanted actor in the world. He was the biggest movie star in the world after this. Yeah, and his next film was a 1988 film, The Presidio, uh, which was a crime drama. Um, it starred him, Mark Harmon, um, and he's uh, an M, uh, military police, isn't he? Um, yeah. And he's having to work with uh, San Francisco detective Mark Harmon to uh, investigate the murder of uh, another military police officer. Um it's it's another one where um because obviously uh Mark Harmon is the uh the young detective uh while Sean Connery is the um he's the colonel of the military police isn't he and it's almost yeah. once again it's that um yeah, like sort of mental training mental relationship role, sort of, yeah. yeah but I th- what I love about this film is it's it's a, it's a decently written plot and but I like the um the chemistry that the yeah. two have on screen together. Because Mark Hammond was was formerly an, a military police officer, wasn't he? Yeah. Under, under he's like a disgrace. Under Sean Connery's command. Yeah. And they don't. So there's they don't a bit like of history other. there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. then as as it goes on, they they each have a really good story arc, and and they begin to work together. Yeah. And yeah, it's a really good film. Yeah. And that leads on to um, probably one of my favourite yeah. um, Sean Connery films is Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. Um, and again, he's playing that father figure mm. to um, the legendary Indiana Jones. And I think Spielberg said that they couldn't think of anybody who could actually play this part other than James mm. Bond. Because how, do you, how yeah. do you play Henry Jones Sr., you know? Yeah. And I think an actor like Sean Connery, like um, Robert was saying, it, only him with his star power and the way he is yeah. could fit that role but the thing is again it's a different role he's, he's not an action hero no. he's he's very much an academic he's a bookworm he gets caught up on this this nazi plot mm. and then goes off on, a, on an adventure with with his son who um he's been estranged from since you know he was a teenager um and in the film you know they say yeah we haven't they haven't spoken much over 20 years no. and it's a chance for them to reconnect uh, which they do um and again, it, it it's a really good film, and I think it's probably my second favourite mm. Indiana Jones film. Um, he was offered the opportunity to return in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but he he'd already retired by that point, yeah. and he I don't think he liked the storyline, and he he said he was actually enjoying retirement too mm. much to do that. But I think yeah, the chemistry between Harrison Ford oh, and Sean Connery yeah. is is brilliant. Um, what we'll say is that the list that we're going through filmography it's not the exhaustive list we're just kind of picking out films here and there yeah um, films of note yeah of. really and the next one is the 1990 Hunt for October which is the first Jack Ryan film um, it's directed by John McTiernan and it's adapted from the Tom Clancy novel um, and it's set in the Cold War era and Connery plays Marco Ramius. He's a submarine commander, and he's been given command of this submarine, um, which has got silent capabilities, and he realises this is a first-strike submarine, and so he decides with the rest of his crew that he's going to defect. Um, And so he has to work with um, Alec Baldwin, who plays Jack Ryan, to to come up with a plan to allow him to defect and for the Americans to take... um, to take the submarine without the Russians knowing, so it's a it's a brilliant it's a really good film, and yeah. I think it's it is probably um, one of my favourite Jack mm. Ryan films. Well, it's, it's odd because like Jack Ryan is a huge name in cinema, yeah. and it is a Jack Ryan film. But uh, you, you remember this as a Connery film, though, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. Not really. necessarily yeah. a Jack Ryan film. But again, it's 
Is Sean Connery playing a Russian with a Scottish accent? Yeah. Because uh, we were talking earlier, Cheetah and I, um, he, he would never, he, he wasn't a classically trained actor. He never, he wasn't no. trained. Most most actors, when they're classically trained, they go to RADA or whatever. Mm. The first thing they do is they will be trained to lose their accent. Um, but then I can't think of many actors today that have, you know, actually do different accents. Yeah. Like we're saying, Harrison Ford doesn't really do it. Robert De Niro doesn't do it. And I think it would weird, it'd be really distracting if Sean Connery was trying to do a different accent. Mm. He briefly toyed with an Irish accent in The Untouchables, which disappeared throughout the film. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit weird. Um, and again, he's, he's playing, he's not the main character. He, mm. um, obviously, Alec Baldwin is the hero, and he's playing, again, that older, wiser mentor type figure. Um, he wasn't actually meant to be in the film. Originally, Klaus Maria Brandauer was cast, but I had to pull out two weeks into filming. So producers faxed the script to Sean Connery. Um, he first declined because he said it was implausible. But what what happened was the first page was missed off the script when they faxed it to him, mm. and it didn't explain that it was set in the 80s in the Cold War. And so when they explained that to him, he, he did the film. Um Again, another another good film, another mm. strong performance. Um, I guess the next film, though, is uh, is he had a brief cameo in Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves, right at the end of the film, when Robin Hood, played by Kevin Costner, is getting married to Maid Marian. Um, he plays Richard the Lionheart, who's just come back from the Crusades, um, and he, uh, I think, he's probably got a three minute cameo in that. I think he got paid a lot, <laughs> a lot of money. I think about a million dollars for for three minutes' work, which Mental, isn't isn't bad, yeah. But that just shows his kind of pulling power in that. Yeah. Um, Nineteen ninety-two. He only made one film. It's called Medicine Man, which is again, it's a weird film. Um, it's it was directed by John McTiernan, who's who's known for action, but it's more of an arty kind mm. of film. Um, he plays this biochemist who has, has discovered, he's living in the Amazon rainforest, discovers a cure for cancer. Um, that's about as much you can say, really. It was, <laughs> it was critically panned, particularly the performance of Lorraine Bracco. Um, she, I think, was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for her performance. Mm. So um, even though it wasn't one of his greatest films, didn't make any money, it's just worth noting. Um Next film was uh, the 1993 Rising Sun, uh, directed by Philip Kaufman, and it's based on uh, Michael Crichton's novel of the same name. Um, and I think this is one of your particular favourites, isn't it, Cheeto? Yeah, once again, it, it it's another mentor role, where um, and you could say it's another like one of those buddy cop movies, but it's. To me, it's so much more than that because, like, Wesley Snipes is the uh, like younger novice cop, yeah, um, who is very he doesn't think things through, he just yeah. think goes with his heart. And where once again, Sean Connery is that mentor, yeah. he's the he's the older, wiser detective, you know. It's it's, it's about a murder in a, in a Japanese company headquarters, yeah. isn't it? And Wesley Snipes is like the new liaison officer mm. for the uh, police. You've got Harvey Keitel, who's kind of the old, embittered, racist yeah. police officer. And then you've got Con almost... Sean Connery's playing John Connor, this almost like a mythical kind of character. He's um, he's well-versed in Japanese culture, yeah, and he, he kind of guides the audience and Wesley Snipes through the whole um, through the whole culture and everything. But I like it, because it turns the film on its head when you realise that a cover-up may be happening, yeah. you know? And they feel that because he's he's too close to the Japanese that he might be involved in it as yeah. well. So they're they're almost they're working together, but they're like they butt heads as well. And I just think it's a, it's, it brings a different dynamic to yeah. the film. Uh, and again, it was a you know it was a blockbuster. It, mm. it made over sixty million dollars. So again, that's him really at the top of his game again. Yeah, I think um, I don't think without him it would have been the same film. No, of course not. So. Um, it didn't really make. He um, made a couple of films in between that that weren't that great. Um, one of the films worth mentioning is um, 
First Night, which was in 1995. It's a medieval film based on the Arthurian legend. And I think he he wanted it to, you know, um, starred Richard Gere as Lancelot. And I think he wanted it to be kind of a, a marquee sort of film and it, it didn't really live up to his expectations. So I think he was a little bit disappointed in that film. Um, the next one was the 96 um, animated, oh, it's not animated, it's a, a action-adventure fantasy, Dragonheart. And Ollie, he just provides the, the voice of the, the main dragon, Draco. Um, again, it's just worth mentioning. Um, and then the next next film that he did really that was massive was 1996's The Rock. Oh, that's a favourite <laughs> it? it is, yeah. And again, he's playing... Um, John Patrick Mason. Yeah, not, really a, a, not really a mentor. Well, he is kind of a mentor, but he's that older... He's the older, wiser, more experienced. Um, the, the sort of story is almost an improbable one. Um, a, a group of US Marines under Ed Harris, they storm Alcatraz and they take the, um, the tourists hostage. And this is all about recognition for fallen some of their fallen comrades um, in, in wars that they haven't been recognised or compensated for. So they want to get paid 100, is it 100 million? Yeah, 100 million. Um, but they have this VX gas, which is a, nerve, a toxic nerve gas that they threaten to shoot into San Francisco. And then you've got Nicolas Cage, who is... Um, He's a, a biochemist. A biochemist, an expert. So he gets dragged in. Um You've got Michael Bean, who's head of the Navy SEALs, mm. the the, the mission, uh, sorry, the team that are going to go in and hopefully rescue the hostages. Um, but they're, what they're looking for really is is intel. And the problem is with the Alcatraz, it's been built on so many times that they don't have proper um, maps or construction no. blueprints or anything. So they need somebody who, and, and supposedly no one's ever broken out of Alcatraz. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that that uh, basically pr- puts pressure on the FBI director to reveal that there is one person who has broken out of Alcatraz and as you say it's John Peter, Patrick Mason John, uh, SES captain former SES <laughs> captain um, he came to the US he stole some of um, FBI director Hoover's uh, Jagger Hoover's private um, files um, on microfilm, and he was captured, and he was held without um, trial. And so the British, the British Secret Service, and and the Americans came up to this compromise that he would be held anonymously, and he'd spent I think something like forty years in prison. Yeah, a large stupid. chunk of his life. One of them, uh, one of the stays, he had an Alcatraz, which he actually escaped from. So he's initially brought in to just act as a consultant. Um, brief the SEAL team, but he says, you know, I, you know, the map's in my head. You know, I need to be on the ground. So he actually accompanies the, the SEAL team. The SEAL team are all killed, um, leaving Nick Cage's character Sidney Goodspeed and uh, Sean Connery's character to basically defeat the Marines and rescue the hostages mm. because there's a, an airstrike has been ordered on Alcatraz, so they have to do it all before before that. And again, it's it's. it's a, I'll just sum it up. It's a Michael Bay film, yeah. so it's yeah. you know, it follows the same tropes. But yeah. um, one, we like the cast and direction, yeah. um, and two, we just we're suckers for big action blockbusters, aren't we? It's it's one. I mean, I'm I'm not a huge fan of action films, but it's one that is. It's just so out there that it, yeah. it's it's because it's got humour as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny, but funny. also it's got good action. What I love it. as well is it is it. It knows what it's doing. It knows it's yeah. a huge bullshit. It, it, it doesn't take itself too seriously, no. does it? Really, um, it cost seventy-five million to make, but it made three hundred thirty-five million at the box office. So that again just shows. Um, yeah, I mean, you could have had another actor in that role, but I just don't think it would have, like you say, the gravitas um, that he would bring to that mm-hmm. role. Because he's also the front and centre on the film poster yeah. as well, isn't he? Yeah. Um, the next film is uh, he made in eighty six is the Avengers, and that is based on the nineteen sixties British television series of the same name, and it starred Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman, um, and Sean Connery plays Sir August De Winter, who was actually the 
uh, a mad scientist, and he mm. was actually the uh, antagonist in this film. So he was all, he was almost playing the kind of Blofeld character to um, a sort of John, James Bond style yeah. character. Um, unfortunately, um, it only grossed fifty five million against sixty million dollar budget, and it it was universally panned by critics. Um, Some consider it one of the worst films ever made. <laughs> yeah. so. Personally, I haven't seen it, um, and I don't know. I can't really com- so I can't really comment on his performance in it. Um, because sometimes you can have a really good performance in a bad film. Yeah. Um, so, in my, in my opinion, Connery, um, he wasn't the worst thing about this film. No. I just think it had a really because I've seen I've been unfortunate to see this. <laughs> uh, like I said, Connery's Connery. He's always going to give him a great performance, but um, one, the plot isn't believable at all. Two, the plot isn't very interesting. Like controlling. The world's weather, well, you know, so it's not, it's just not that good of a film. Well, it's really. kind of all being done in James Bond, doesn't yeah. it, really? And yeah. it is just another rehash of James Bond. Yeah. But, yeah, it's not, not a very good film. I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. Okay, moving on from that. Um, his next film was the 1999 uh, Caper film, Entrapment, which he actually uh, produced as well. And he plays uh, an art thief, and he's being pursued by a, an, invest, an insurance investigator played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. And she basically tries to entrap him, claiming that she's a professional art thief herself and proposing that they work together on their next um, heist. Um, it's okay, but, I mean, by this time, he's getting on for, like, 70, 69, 70. Um, he's kind of trying to recapture that leading man status. Yeah. Um, it just feels a bit creepy, him yeah. kind of flirting with Catherine Zeta-Jones and her being the kind of love interest in it. Um, but again, it, it although it was critically not very well received, it, it made a lot of money at the box office from a, a $60 million, $66 million budget, it made $212 million. So again, another, another blockbuster. Um, and so the next film I'm going to talk about is uh, his last film, uh, the 2003 The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, it's based on a... Uh, it's a diesel punk superhero film, and it's loosely based on the first volume of the comic book series of the same name by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. Um, Sean Connery plays um, Alan Quatermain in it, and you've got other characters uh, such as Captain Nemo, uh, Dorian Gray, Tom Sawyer, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Professor Moriarty. Um, again, I think there were production problems. Mm, um, serious production problems. It's one that Connery produced uh, himself as well, and he did say that, you know, didn't like the, the directing. Um, tried to spend a lot of time trying to fix it in, in editing, um, but really couldn't save it. I mean, even though um, it wasn't a great film, it it made 179 million from a from a 78 million budget. So I don't know if that was uh, good. Um, it opened number two behind Paris the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. But the critics, you know, really did pan it, didn't like it at all, um, and I think that's what prompted him really to. To retire, just pack it up, yeah, yeah, because um, he d- he didn't really go want to go through that experience again, no. and so it's really unfortunate. And like I said, he was you know he was offered the opportunity to be in the the um, the, the fourth Indiana Jones films, reprise his role as as Henry Jones Senior, but he said you know he was enjoying retirement so much and didn't really want to do it. So uh, fair enough, I guess. Yeah. It's just a shame that he had what seventeen years of his life left, and he didn't make another yeah. movie. So yeah, I mean, you look at people like Clint Eastwood who were still making films mm. into the nineties. I mean, he, mm. he could have if he wanted to. And sometimes, more interestingly than roles that that they do accept, is the roles that they were offered and, and turned down. Mm. And you know, allegedly, he was offered the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, he turned it down because he didn't want to spend. 18 months filming in New Zealand 
uh, it's claimed he didn't really understand the the novels. Mm. Um, again, it, it's uh, <laughs> he was supposedly offered thirty million dollars up front and fifteen percent of the profits, which would have made him four hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, he was also offered the role of the architect in the Matrix, mm. um, as well as um, the role of John Hammond in Jurassic Park. Um, and it's also a rumour that Harrison Ford was offered the role of uh, Dr. Alan Grant. But it's probably too close to Indiana Jones, I think, as a yeah. character, probably why he turned it down. Um, and also he was offered the role of uh, Dumbledore in Harry Potter. So I can actually see him in some of those roles. I could, yeah. You know, Gandalf and yeah, Dumbledore. Yeah, I think so. Um, but again, you know, they're, they're sort of, some roles you can't see other actors in. Yeah. But I think, yeah, yeah I think he would have maybe made. It's like with, with um, John Hammond, like, I can only see that as a Richard Attenborough thing and yeah. same with Sam Neill with House of Waters. Yeah. yeah, but, uh, yeah, it would have been interesting to have Lord of the Rings. Mm. Oh, and, no, to be fair, like I said, it's, it might be controversial, but I've watched them all, but I, they're, they're not films. Yeah. I understand how great they are, but they're not films we, we watch all the time. But I would go out seriously and watch it just because of Sean Connery if he mm. was in it, but... Yeah, um, and unfortunately, um, Sir Sean Connery died in his sleep on the 31st of October 2020, aged 90, in Nassau, in the Bahamas. And I think you're agreeing with me, he's sorely missed and, and probably, yeah. again, he, he isn't a classical actor, he's, no. he's not a method actor, um, he's Sean Connery. Um, he, just has, he just is the leading man, isn't yeah. he? And so... He just has that grace on the screen that only Sean Connery can, like you said, he's, he's Sean Connery. There's no other words yeah, to describe it. Definitely. Um, any final words? Um, just to say that I'm glad that he decided to change from a bodybuilder into an actor because we wouldn't have got all these great films, you know, and, and he is, in my opinion, one of the best to have come from the UK in a long list of, you know, classically trained actors. And, yeah. and it's, uh, like I said, he is the when you talk about greatest leading man, he's probably the best leading man of all time. So, Yeah, he's, he's certainly made a diverse type of film yeah. as well. Um, he's not just stuck to one. And he's, he has tried to stretch himself, I think, as an actor to try and get away from that action hero, yeah. James Bond status. Um, but I really do... Of course, he'll always be known for Doctor No, but I really do think, in my opinion, that he's, he's beat the typecast because he's done so many... Yeah different genres, so many different films mm. that you just can't typecast yeah. him, even though... I it, think in a, in a way that other actors have been able to do. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, thank you for listening. Mm. Uh, thank you, Cheeto, for you, joining me for this podcast. I think um, next week we're going to do Ridley Scott, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to do a sort of series of podcasts where we focus on a particular actor or a director, um, along with our usual uh, general sort of podcasts. Mm. Um as always, where we have more content, uh, we're on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, it's all the film geezers. Uh, so thank you for joining us and hope to see you next week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.